Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. Nearly one in six adults struggle with some form of infertility. And yet while the pregnancy journey is pretty well defined and understood, the process of conceiving is not. It is full of misinformation. It often magnifies the feelings of shame, inadequacy, and loneliness that many people already are struggling with. And it starts from the incorrect premise that infertility is purely a women's health issue. In short, the process is an opaque, emotionally taxing nightmare for millions of men and women. Lauren Burson Sugarman is trying to change that. An accomplished senior executive and former venture capitalist in Andreessen Horowitz, Lauren has set out to make the process of navigating infertility simpler, more empathetic, and ultimately more effective. Lauren is the founder of Conceive, a health tech startup bringing community, coaching, and education together to influence infertility outcomes. And in this conversation, we discuss the origins of Conceive, what Lauren learned about building effective communities from her previous experiences. We dug into some of the biggest misconceptions about infertility and how Conceive is helping solve them. It was a really interesting conversation. I think I'll get a lot out of it. And with that, let's go to Lauren. All right, Lauren, thank you so much for being here. Really looking forward to doing this. Want to get into Conceive, but maybe prior to that, why don't we, I guess, just start with your background and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. I'm first of all, thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me, Sean. I've listened to a number of your podcasts with friends of mine and oh. investors of mine. Adrian Un was just on, who's an investor of Conceives, Michael Brandt at Human. Thrilled to dig in. So it's hard to even talk about Conceive without talking about my background. So I'll kind of just walk you through who I am. I spent the last couple of decades really building products and communities, mostly in the tech world. And I would say my superpower has always been connecting people to make really big impact on businesses. And I've done this in small startups like Mebo at big companies like Google, and then in venture capital at Andreessen Horowitz for four years in the trenches with our founders like Michael Brandt at Human, helping them accelerate time to market and generate big deals, right? So really going deep with the Fortune 500 and figuring out how do we get folks like Coinbase to become the de facto price of Bitcoin in Google search? And how do we get products like Soylent on the shelves in Walmart and on Amazon.com? And the list goes on, helping the folks at Best Buy spin up their Best Buy Health Initiative and Aging in Place. And then the last couple of years of my career, I joined Weight Watchers, which from the outside looking in was a little bit of a non-obvious move. But there were a couple of things that really compelled me to the company that are so relevant to what we're building with Conceive. The first was sitting at Andreessen, I saw this proliferation of wellness companies that were all point solutions, right? Mm -hmm. So if you know how to take care of yourself, which by the way, most of the world does not, you can yeah. find your yoga app, your meditation app, your sleep app. But what was so confounding to me was no one was bringing these pieces together. And the reality is how you eat affects how you sleep, affects how you move, right? We all know this to be true. Now, Weight Watchers was trying to do this. They were trying to extend their value prop beyond just weight loss. They brought me on to help. I helped launch our sleep, fitness, and meditation products, which not only extended the, life, the value prop of the company, it extended the lifetime value of the customer right? Because yeah. there was more stuff to stick around for. But the other piece I was so compelled by was my whole life, I've been building communities, I would say in the analog world, especially in the mm -hmm. pre-COVID world. These meetings used to be face-to-face, -face, right? We would establish camaraderie and rapport. I would then figure out those synergies, connect the dots, and then drive home a deal. Mm -hmm. I had never done this in the digital world. And when I saw and got a glimpse of Weight Watchers digital community, I was blown away. I don't know if you've ever checked it out. I highly recommend yeah. doing so. It's like a yeah. master course in community. And what about it? It's, it's, it's essentially the most positive place on the internet. 
So I'll walk you through an example. Like, of course, you can go on there and see these sort of massive transformation stories of how people's lives were changed through the before and after photos. But on the whole, it's mostly just this like sheer raw vulnerability of someone saying like, hey, I'm Lauren, I'm getting out for a walk today. I haven't moved my body in three years. And everyone is in your corner cheering you on. It's just this like beautiful, palpable, contagious thing. And I wanted to learn how to do that. Like, yeah. how do you create safe spaces where people feel like they could be their most vulnerable? Yeah. And as it turns out, research shows if you're able to be vulnerable about a health condition, you're better able to stick to a plan, which is why it all works, right? Huh. So I'm doing this. I'm getting this crash course on how to build digital communities and digital health programs. And all the while, and this even predates my time at Weight Watchers, my husband and I were struggling to get pregnant. And we had a bunch of resources at our disposal. We saw lots of doctors on both coasts. We had a miscarriage at nine and a half weeks after trying for a year and a half after hearing his heartbeat, which still brings me to a really difficult place. And I, I mourn him every year. And we had failed treatment. We had a missed diagnosis that we didn't get for four years. We had a misdiagnosis being told we had unexplained infertility when in reality, there was a little bit more to the story. Yeah. And everything that I experienced, right, while I was sort of sitting at Weight Watchers, building these things to help people for a different realm, I recognized like the needs that I had were so similar. So essentially, like the first thing I felt, in particular in 2017, when I was first getting started was, I felt completely isolated and alone. I didn't think I knew anyone around me that had an infertility story. I would say, flash forward to 2022, we're a little bit more vocal about this. I'll be really excited when men are talking about infertility at equal rates, because mm -hmm. actually infertility affects men at equal rates in terms of actually like men are infertile at equal rates to women. And we'll yeah. talk about that a little bit more. But no one was talking about this. And what happened for me was the moment I opened my mouth, it was like the floodgates opened. I heard from friends and strangers and people I hadn't spoken to in decades, like old camp friends reaching out and saying, Lauren, your story sounds like mine. Can we talk about this? And what happens is, as we're forced to form these underground communities of women who are suffering in silence, who are just looking for support, yeah. right? And what's more is you wind up finding these sort of what I call mentors, who are now really our coaches, and we'll talk about that as well. Yeah. who have been through it and then have had success, right? So for me, this was my husband's friend from college's wife. I had never met her. We had countless phone conversations because she had four miscarriages and now has two kids. And she would walk me through the, the, the wisdom that she learned on her journey, some of which applied to me, some of which didn't because these journeys are all so personal. Yeah. And I would learn a little bit along the way and kind of glean these insights. And the second piece that has multiple parts to it is, you are going through for what's usually the first time in your life entering our healthcare system in a meaningful way. And you are embarking on what is arguably one of the most complex and haphazard healthcare journeys there are. And I'll walk you through why I say that. Yeah. Um, first of all, from a young age in our teenage years, we're taught that you can blink and get pregnant. Uh, <laughs> I wish that were the case. I mean, the reality yeah. is it's less than a 20% chance per month in your 20s. And continues wow. to decline over time. People don't know that. We think like once we're going to try, we're going to have a baby. Yeah. What's more is often in this country, things like heavy periods, like markers of hormonal issues or possible things like endometriosis are usually masked with birth control. At a very young age, if we have a heavy period, we take birth control. If we have no period, we take birth control. If we have a regular period, we take birth control. So for a 
couple dozen years or, or, or a couple decades, we actually don't know what our body has been telling us until we go off birth control and then start from scratch. When in some cases, it's too late. In some cases, it's just later than maybe is helpful, depending on the family you want to have. Mm-hmm. And then you are told you need to try for six to 12 months on your own before you actually enter the healthcare system and start talking to a specialist. And by the way, you could have no sperm. Even if you're yeah. ejaculating semen, there could be no sperm in that, which is a common misconception that most people do not know. Just because you have semen, it doesn't mean you have sperm. It doesn't mean you're fertile. You could have blocked fallopian tubes. There could be countless things that could be fundamentally wrong, yet you're told you need to kind of try this stuff without any other guidance. And you're essentially piecing together what I would call a shit show, if I'm allowed to say that on this (laughs) podcast, books and blogs and 2 a.m. Google rabbit holes on websites that are playing an SEO game with you. They are not there to educate you and you wind up feeling worse. You get 30 different answers to the same questions. You're going on Instagram rabbit holes and trying to hear what different people have to say, whether they're credible or not. And it's sort of madness, right? In no other aspect of your life would you embark on a years long journey without a map without a guide, without an expert. I don't know if you're a skier. I'm absolutely not. But you wouldn't go down (laughs) a black diamond for the first time without a guide. It's What struck me was, juxtaposed with the pregnancy journey, it's sort of like chaos meets like order, right? So like once you're pregnant, it is so defined. It's a blueberry this week. Yeah, Yeah, right. It's a blueberry this week. You go in next week for your ultrasound. Everything is so mapped out. And there's nothing clearer than using like a fertility tracker app too, because the the sort of the infertility aspect and like the planning is, is sort of haphazard and wild. And then once you're pregnant, it's like, okay, here's what's going on now. And here's what's going on now. And did you check this? And here's what you should be feeling. Here's what you shouldn't be feeling. And that stark juxtaposition really struck me where you have such a haphazard nature, even when you enter the system and you start working with a doctor, there are all different kinds of plans and triages. And what happened for me was I started getting really curious about this, right? I had my own personal journey. I am an N of one. And I started speaking to like hundreds of other people. And I was like, well, walk me through what happened for you. Yeah. And I realized that in everyone's story or in most people's stories, I should say, there was like this moment of like, if only, It was like, well, if only I had like asked about that sooner, if only I had known that earlier on, if only Mm -hmm. I knew I had endometriosis, I kept saying I had debilitating cramps, but no one was paying attention. And I wonder, well, why couldn't we, right? Like, why Mm -hmm. couldn't we figure out these if only sooner? And Mm -hmm. simplistically, the need states were so similar to what we were solving with Weight Watchers, right? That need for education, guidance, and community. But the intent is so, so different, right? If you want to have a family, it is the number one thing you want to do. You will stop at nothing, right? Which is why you see these articles of women who are literally breaking their backs, working at Amazon fulfillment centers just to get fertility coverage, or they're flying to foreign countries for to do IVF for cheaper, or they're working at Starbucks to get fertility coverage. There's no cohort more high intent. And yet there was no one solving this need. Right. Yeah. And so where conceive really comes in is to to solve these need states that I already identified. But we sit really neatly between the provider and the and the member Mm -hmm. to help change outcomes. That is our simple, simple mission. It is. I mean, it's simple and it's complex. Right. But we are focused on we're a digital health company changing fertility outcomes. And the way that we're doing this is all the ways I just identified. I mean, it's cohort-based community, evidence-based education, and coaching to help you ideally get pregnant faster, reduce costs, 
uncover diagnoses that help change your care plan, and then feel less anxious and less stressed. The reality is like the mental toll is one of the aspects of this we don't talk enough about, but it often yeah. reaches that of cancer patients. Yeah. Cancer patients, right? Think about that for a moment. Yeah. It is wild, right? And and yet there's so little in the way of support there. And the way that we do this today, we have an eight-week program. We curate groups of 10 who are in a similar part of their fertility journey. So it's a really safe space. And the goal is you look around that virtual room and you say, oh, finally, my people. And why this is so important is there are countless Facebook groups and Reddit forums and things that you can kind of go into. They're pretty transactional at best. You can ask a question, you can get an answer, you can scroll through. But the reality is they're all kind of free for all. You can have a 20-year-old who's just getting started and a 42-year-old who's seven years in with failed treatment. And those kinds of things can be really triggering. And what's more is you don't have any experts, right? So yeah. you don't know if what is being shared is safe for you. And yeah. so we take care of that with the second piece, which is evidence-based education. Everything we do is evidence-based, expert-vetted. We can talk a lot about how there's not enough women's uh, like research funding for women's health and how we know very little about the women's body, Right. It wasn't until the 90s that women were allowed in clinical research. And even now it's measured on an aggregate basis versus a per trial basis. You don't actually know a lot, especially in the childbearing years. There's obviously the ethical reasons, but the reality is like we're still in infancy stages. For a while, women's bodies were thought to be the same as men, which we know it's very, very untrue, right? We're very, very different. (laughs) And so the reality is like we try to help you cut through the noise of like what is expert vetted and what is evidence-based. Because there's a lot of yeah. new things that people might try, supplements and, and, and stuff like this. And we want to be the arbiters to say, okay, well, we all know supplements aren't regulated by the FDA. And there's a lot of things that are kind of hands off. What will actually be just expensive urine if you take it? Or what could actually be detrimental, yeah. right? So helping you yeah. cut through the noise in the very quickest way. And then our coaches, there's kind of twofold to the coaches. So one is our coaches have all been in your shoes. So they have that level of empathy and understanding of an infertility journey to be able to offer you the support that you need. Again, taking a page out of the Weight Watchers playbook, right? Coaches are all folks who've had success at Weight Watchers. It's an amazing model. It works for a reason. And they guide the group for the eight weeks. But we also bring in different experts to lead sessions and do one-on-ones. So our head of clinical ops at Conceive, Hunter Stitzer, is an incredible nurse who spent the last couple of decades at leading IVF clinics in New York, Cornell and CCRM. She spends time with our members, helping them really know what to ask their doctor about, know what questions they didn't know, right? Uncover yeah. new things in their care plan that can help them accelerate and be, our, be that expert, be that guide, right? And if yeah. we go back to that pregnancy parallel, Again, so much is so defined and people find solace, comfort in hiring someone called a doula during pregnancy. This is a really good parallel, but I don't think doulas are well understood. So if you'll give me a minute, I will explain. Yeah, I don't actually know. Yeah, yeah, but I I don't never ask what they actually do. Yeah. So a doula is this amazing support system during pregnancy. And what they do is they go in with you into the hospital or wherever you're giving birth. And they have been through hundreds of births themselves, and they are your advocate. They know what to ask, what to push back on. They know how to help you make sure you're advocating for yourself and trusting your gut with the doctors that you're working with. And we are so pro-doctor. We have doctors on our medical advisory board. There is nothing against that. But there are certain things sometimes, right, that 
you might need to gut check. And no one is perfect in this field. And we, I know you were talking about this a little bit with Adrian, but like doctors see 20 patients a day and they are just people. And so there can be things that are missed, right? And so knowing what to help you push back on and knowing when to help you advocate for yourself. If you didn't want your epidural, you don't, you don't need to get it, right? Whatever the case may be, right? And I'm not anti-epidural yeah. either. I, I, I had one. But that is this moment in time, an important moment in time, right? Where you have this sort of concierge-like guide who's done it a million times and knows to tell you what to do, right? Or, to, yeah. or not to tell you what to do, but to like help guide you. Yeah. And, and yet, years-long fertility journeys, we have no one. So in some way, we're like a market maker. We're creating this new space where we're saying, hey, we're your expert. We're like your best friend in your pocket that can help guide you, that can help you learn about the questions you don't know and help kind of get those if only sooner, right? Why should it be that we get that a year later? Why couldn't we get that in six months? Yeah. And so far, it's working. I mean, we have had tremendous results so far, small groups. So I won't overstate, yeah. but we're, we're, we're hustling and we're in early days. Yeah. We've been able to change outcomes for 82% of our members. And that breaks down into 72% are pregnant or have given birth. And then another 27%, we help them uncover a diagnosis that actually changed their care plan. In many cases, yeah. resulting in a pregnancy or pursuing surrogacy. And we're just so proud. There's literally nothing that makes me more proud, more grateful. Nothing I want to yeah. do more than this. Yeah. I mean, from an impact perspective, I can't imagine a bigger <laughs> sense of fulfillment in that regard. There's so many, okay. There's, there's, there's a lot of places I think we could go. Yeah, I want to, yeah. I, I do want to get into, I love getting into the mechanics of the business itself. I'd love to learn about kind of what you learned about community and how you took some of the lessons from, from venture and applied it to, to pitching this. Cause it's a little bit of a different business model than I think you often see in venture. But before we get into that, just to, yeah, put a finer point on some of the research side of things and to flesh out the problem just a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. Why, I guess to start, like, why is, why was there so little research in this space? Why, given the magnitude of the problem, the magnitude of the opportunity, why has there been so much misinformation? Why has there been such little research done? Like what, yeah. what did you gather yeah. as you were kind of doing research for this? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say it goes above and beyond just fertility and reproductive health. But I think it's this, this, I hate to say it, just this, the fact that, uh, the fact that this is thought to be a women's health issue is part of the problem. Mm. Like, I think people have, have, have liked to say that if men could get pregnant, we would have abortions at gas stations, right? That's going one step too far, possibly. But the reality is in this country, sort of since the dawn of of doctors, we have created this paternalistic approach and thinking around women and women's bodies. So again, going to the genesis of clinical research, any woman in their childbearing years is actually prevented from being in clinical research. And now you can obviously note that there's ethical implications of someone who's pregnant entering a clinical trial. But what's so interesting to me is like when you think about what we know about what's safe during pregnancy, for example, there's a whole class of different drugs, right? Like if you want to take Advil during pregnancy, it's class, I don't know what it is, it's some class, right? Um, That's kind of all guesswork, right? There's obviously not ever been a clinical trial that says everybody take this drug and we're going to measure you while you're pregnant, right? It's based on these databases of women that we've reviewed that happened to take Advil and noted it, right, in different countries. and 
what's more is in the 1990s, women were finally allowed to be in clinical research. But as I think I mentioned earlier, like it's still measured on an aggregate basis versus a per trial basis. And I would say even before that, a lot of the thinking was that women's and men's bodies were the same. And they're obviously not, right? Not only are they very different, we have really complex systems or a complex hormonal processes going through our body on a monthly basis, but we process drugs differently, right? There's a lot of things to take into consideration when it comes to some of the outcomes we've suggested based on clinical research based on men. And then let's forget people of color because that's a whole other thing that doesn't, we don't mm-hmm. have good, good data on. And then what's more is I think, I think we're at the point where in terms of infertility rates, they are one in six, right? So one in six have trouble conceiving. The CDC actually measures infertility based on its prevalence in women, which gives you a sense of this sort of oh. weird lopsided view. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they have a question on their website that says, is infertility only a women's issue? And it says no, but it's yeah. a very interesting dynamic, right? I think because it's thought of as a woman's problem, there's so many other confounding factors that are kind of left to the wayside. I mean, I don't think folks even know that 50% of the time it's actually part of the man's issue, right? right so to speak. Right. Um, we don't talk about this. And what's there more, one of the things... Thing on the male side about not, like, it's different. Like like for, for women, I would imagine there's like a... I guess it's like a, it's like the male version of shame. Like it's like a, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a, it points to your fitness as a, as a, as a person almost to, to not be able to, to, to provide a child to your wife or whomever it is. Totally. Is that a, yeah. Totally. And, and I mean, you can think about it for years. It was thought that like, if you were infertile, it was the woman's problem. Right. And it was, <laughs> there was something wrong with her. The men were, men were sort of untouchable in that sense. But when we look at the data, what actually happens, and this is really interesting. So a third of the time, it's the woman. A third of the time, it's the man. A third of the time, it's what's called unexplained infertility. So it's idiopathic, right? But the reality is that that diagnosis is delivered to the woman. So you essentially have like two thirds of the brunt falling on the woman when in reality, it's sort of 50-50 because that third could be either that we just don't know because we... We're in very early stages when it comes to research. I mean, we're, it's a 40-year-old field, so that's not, you know, it's not two years old. But yeah. um, when it comes to funding, I think we're cancer research is 20x, right? Which you can understand why. There's certainly different implications of not having something versus having yeah. something that is very serious. Yeah. Um, but I think in many ways, the infrastructure still thinks of infertility as this elective nice to have, right? Like yeah. Botox. It's like, oh, well, you don't need coverage for Botox, right? Which is why 75% of patients have no coverage. But, you know, so there's one in six that this affects. There's two people's journeys sitting on the burden of one. If you're in a heterosexual couple, the woman is navigating what is arguably the most complex patient journey. And just to give you a sense, you often see, on average, you see three to five specialists. You do three to five different diagnostic tests. You then can do years of IUI and IVF, which are different treatments that can help get you pregnant, none of which are silver bullets, right, which is important to note. The average IVF cycle costs $20,000, actually $63,000 for success, which is a lot of money for anyone, right? And, And the burden is still like shifted to one person's shoulders. And I would say what you hit on is right. I think there's shame on both sides, right? I think women don't feel like women if they can't conceive. Men similarly, I would say we need to, we need to start to unravel this. Right. And I think we're getting there, but until we 
level that playing field and talk about it in the in the ways that it actually exists. We're yeah. perpetuating this through infrastructure. So for example, when you are a young woman, you go to an OB and you have a relationship with an OB, right? Men, do you have a relationship with a urologist, Sean? I don't have a urologist. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, so, you know, when I ask any man, they're like, what? What? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. When we want to get pregnant, what do women do? We go to fertility trackers. And these yeah. fertility trackers, many of which are very helpful, by the way. I've used many of them. I've used all of them. I've been a paying yeah, customer yeah. of all of them. They yeah. talk all about your cycle. Most of them, the majority of them, of them do not ever mention your male partner and what maybe they should do, right? The clinics that you go to when you want to get pregnant, the, are, the clinics that have reproductive endocrinologists, they don't have urologists typically. They're treating the woman, right? Yeah. And the good ones will obviously refer you to a urologist and they will do a semen analysis up front. But there's just so much misinformation here. And there's so much mm. of a structural problem around how this is perpetuated. We think if yeah. a man has semen, he has sperm. We think men can have babies at any age at any age at all, right? Men having babies at 80. But the reality right. is if you're a man, your sperm quality declines just like egg quality. And you're more likely to have your baby's more likely to have congenital disorders like autism spectrum disorder as you age. Yeah. And these things just okay. aren't discussed, but they're starting That's to crazy. be. Yeah, that's crazy. So do you see a world where you mentioned that like once someone gets pregnant, the journey is pretty defined and you have these apps that are like, this is what happens here and this is what happens here. Or as you've gone through this, I know it's early days. Do you see a world where a couple decides that they want to get pregnant, that it can be somewhat decision tree-ish? It's like, hey, this looks like this might be your issue. Here are the three yeah. three things that you can do. Like, is that the vision? Or how close yes. do you think you can get to <laughs> how that? How did you know? <laughs> yeah. No, that really is the vision. I mean, really what, what our secret sauce is and what we're mapping out is these patient journeys, right? And really learning from our early members of, okay, what have you done? What haven't you done? Um, and starting mm -hmm. to create these data sets around that. The, mm -hmm. the reality is it doesn't need to be as haphazard as it is. I think there's a lot of the sort of paternalism and training, right, in the medical profession too, right? You're trained by a certain doctor who does things a certain way. And there's sort of like a newer guard emerging that's sort of like less paternalistic, mm -hmm. less fear-mongering, yeah. right? There's a lot of fear-mongering yeah. in this space, which always struck me as odd. Like we talk generally about how mindset is important. Like you think you can, you think you can't, you're right. Like all these fun sayings. And yet when it yeah. comes to infertility, it feels like there are neon flashing billboards following only women around, just like saying, your eggs are dying, your eggs are dying. We have this, we actually have this on our website, a neon billboard that says your eggs are dying with a cross out that says not. Yeah. Because those kinds of things are not helpful, right? Now, while it's yeah. true that eggs die over time, you're born with all the eggs you'll ever have, right? So you already have them now. And the fear mongering yeah. around it doesn't help. And that paternalism doesn't help. And the notion that you can be told by a doctor, you have a 1% chance of conceiving and go on to have this miracle baby. Perhaps it wasn't a miracle baby. Perhaps it was sort of an inaccurate diagnosis in a nascent field that created tremendous amounts of stress. But yeah. the reality is like, if you can start to measure and understand where people are in their journey, and give them the tools that they need earlier, like mm -hmm. why couldn't we change outcomes, 
right? It's a no brainer. Yeah. Literally nothing like this exists today, right? Yeah. Everything yeah. that you do is, is quite haphazard. And even the best doctors in the world, right? And some of our members have seen the best doctors in the world. They just don't have the bandwidth both to, I mean, A, to connect you with a community, of course, right? That's certainly not in the yeah. business model of a clinic to say, here's a group, go, yeah. go chat, right? And they understand how much support matters. But also the doctor mm -hmm. Googling, right? Like you constantly yeah. have questions and they can only feel yeah. so much. And so having that yeah. second set of eyes to say, here's what's garbage and here's what you might want to push back and ask about and set up another meeting um, with your doctor to discuss those yeah. things can only result. You put a little more structure to something, put a little structure to chaos and you can get good results. Yeah. Well, and it's always struck me just in, in, with healthcare in general, the idea that your doctor, like you think about them going through residency, then you think about them in their profession. It's not surprising to me that they don't have hours and hours and hours to regularly stay on top of what is what what new research is out there and everything is so the body is so complex and all that kind of stuff and like so it's it's not surprising to me that they're they're mostly doing it's like VC it's like pattern recognition it's like the same thing yeah, of like yeah, I I'm, yeah. I'm making decisions based on the cases I've seen at the end of the day which is probably limited and so like to your point around collecting a data set that's got to be hugely valuable You've hit the nail on the head there, Sean. Like there's so many examples of this, right? There's all these kind of add-on tests during the IVF process that cost like $1,000, $1,500, which is not a small amount. But like when you're spending 20K, some folks are like, well, why not, right? Yeah. One such test is called the endometrial receptivity test, which is supposed to sort of tell you at what point in your cycle should they implant the embryo for, for best success. This test mm -hmm. has been around for about 10 years, but there's never been a double-blind placebo trial on this particular test. And so what happens is, is it enters the ecosystem and certain doctors decide to try it and certain yeah. doctors have success with it, right? And so they continue doing it and they advocate for it. And then other doctors try it and that doesn't work for a couple of patients. And so they are completely against it, right? And what's yeah. so interesting is because there's not enough research funding to do double-blind placebo trials on this, you have this sort of like, morass of like, well, what's good? Like, should I do this? Should yeah. I not? And there was recently a clinical trial on this that I think indicated that it wasn't effective. And so you can imagine why people and our members tend to be very educated, stats driven, doing their research, mm -hmm. right? They want to know, right? They want someone yeah. to just like help them. Yeah. You can imagine why everyone's heads are spinning. And there's tons of these. And I like to say, I mean, yeah. The unfortunate truth is like if we were to wait for everything to have a double blind placebo trial on it, we'd sooner die, let alone be in our fertile <laughs> years, right? Like yeah, it's yeah. it's sort of astounding. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the big things to which I mentioned part of this haphazard journey, it's like you're supposed to try for six to 12 months and then doctors move through their own protocols for how they move you into the journey. Like we suggest a lot of sort of stuff done up front, especially if you're like curious if you're ready to start planning, like we have protocols and sets of tests that we we just say, just just do this, right? Like why wait? Why do, why do things in pieces? So we have like what we right. call the conceived basics, which is like blood work for the man and the woman if it's a heterosexual couple, right? Mm -hmm. check, check, your, check your hormone levels, check your thyroid. Like there's no yeah. reason why, you know, what often happens, and we touch on this a little bit, but a semen analysis, can sometimes be done at the end. So a woman has been poked and prodded like seven times doing all these different exams only to find out her partner has no sperm when they're ready to do IVF and now they need a sperm donor. Why? Yeah. 
Why yeah. wouldn't you want that information up front? And there's so much self-blame. And I know that from my own journey. I mean, I blamed myself for years. I felt like it was only my issue. Yeah. We found out eventually my partner has a varicocele, which was astounding to find out four years in. It is not a silver bullet for us in so much as the sperm quality factors are still pretty or good. So mm-hmm. it, you know, the varicocele is not impacting that in a significant way. But yeah. You know, these this sort of information is power, and having mm-hmm. that sooner just makes a ton of sense versus this yeah. sort of older school mentality of let's just wait and see what happens. Yeah. So you you, you talked to you said you talked to like five hundred or so people. Or, or was that just were, had you already decided that this was something that you wanted to try to solve for when you were doing that, and then you these were customer development interviews, or was this? <laughs> Literally just, I'm super curious. And then you, how did you get to? It was a little of both, right? It was, I've just been obsessed with this space for, I don't know now, it's five or six years since I started trying in 2017 and just fascinated by like the lack of solutions. Uh, And I I found, and what I was excited about was that there are smart people building in a couple of areas. Like what I saw early on was like people were coming in and saying, we're going to unbundle the clinic. And we're going to help you test your hormone levels from home and, you know, Mm -hmm. get the best prenatal vitamins and, you know, test your semen from home. And that's great, right? Like we shouldn't have to be beholden to a clinic to do everything. The reality is there's only 1,800 reproductive endocrinologists in the country. Juxtapose that with 200,000 dentists, right? Like there is actual deserts where people cannot see an RNA. Isn't that wild? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, it's wild. So there's not enough, right? So unbundling the clinic, like super excited about folks who are doing that. And then there are great, great companies that are trying to make IVF more successful, right? Companies mm-hmm. like A-Life, Pax Invader York is one of our investors, companies like Tomorrow Life Sciences. We need to make this more successful. One of the sort of other misconceptions is that IVF is a silver bullet and that once you do it, you're going to get pregnant. And the reality is that's not true. It usually takes three cycles and even then it can fail for folks. And folks, there are folks that can wind up never having a child, right? Which is the, the really right. unfortunate reality. Um, we yeah. think these things are a given, especially because sex ed, I think, needs to be rewritten to sort of not be this fear mongering of like, you can blink and get pregnant. I talked to people during the journey during my own journey, because I was just fascinated about what was going on. And then there was a point in time, a moment in time where I saw proliferation of a couple of different companies, right, in these two spaces, but no one was really solving those need sets that I identified of the isolation, the stigma, the shame, and then the need for real resources and guidance, um, care Mm -hmm. navigation, if you will. And I just started to vet this with folks. I was like, okay, well, tell me, talk to me about, so so part of them were not really like customer research discussions. And then part of them were, right? right? It was like, talk me through your journey, talk me through the pain points. And I wanted to vet that like, this wouldn't just be a product for the end of one that is me. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. And you, so you, you, you go through these conversations and then you arrive at the gap that you see is community. And obviously some of that I think was informed by the Weight Watchers experience, but it seems like a, it seems like venture is starting to become more wise to the impact that community can have as a strategic kind of lever that one can pull, but it still seems like it's, I would imagine that you went and you talked to smart people and some of them said, you're building a like a web form or whatever it is. Like, how did you, you, putting on your hat with your experience being pitched, how did you then turn around and say, yes, I'm building a community and this is why and convince them that this is a billion dollar opportunity? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and I, I would see things a little differently. So community okay. is one of the insights, right? But the other yeah. is the care navigation, right? Like you, okay. you can't just have one without the other. And the care navigation okay. is both from peer coaches, but also from medical experts, right? From doctors. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. those are the insights. That's how we're trying to solve for outcomes. So that I wouldn't okay. classify us as only sort of like a patient's like me, where it's just like come yeah. together and you can figure things out. This is like, you also have care navigation combined together. So so, I mean, I could talk for, about community forever. I think it's a very misunderstood and, and misused. It got pretty trendy, I think, in early COVID. There's some companies that got ridiculous yeah. valuations off the back of, of sort of being community-oriented. I don't think followers makes a community. I can talk a little bit about like what I learned yeah. is key to building community yeah. that I know is hard, but you know, I know I, I have the tool set to do it. So the first thing I would say that's like really, really critical is like, is clearly establishing those virtues and values up front of why you're there. It seems obvious, but if you do that and you do that in everything that you say and you do and you demonstrate it and you, you model it for your community, they know why they're there and they're not going to like violate shit. <laughs> like the yeah. reality is like, there's such a small percentage of moderation that needs to happen on certain platforms that are very clear about their virtues and values because people just know why they're there. Right. The Weight Watchers community was just like brilliant at that. Right. They knew why they were there. I would say if you were building a free for all community, like a Twitter or a clubhouse where it's like, come one, come all, that's where it gets more difficult because yeah. you don't, in a way it's a self-weeding garden. There are very few people who are going to pay to enter conceive and then start violating and, and being crazy. Right. right, um, right. But I think that that mechanism and reinforcing that in, in your values and your brand and your comms is key. The yeah. second piece is really like creating that sense of belonging. So an obvious one, but like having shared language, shared rituals, right? Creating mm -hmm. something that feels like your own language. The next is influence, like showing people that they matter and whether that's, it's different than being an influencer, right? Especially in, in the guise of sort of infertility, but it's like right. letting people feel like they have the stage, like they can share their stories, right? That they met their stories matter and that's meaningful for other people. Yeah. And then building that shared connection. And for us, what's really interesting is the one-on-one -on -one deep, meaningful connection has always been something I've been most passionate about. And 70% of our beta members organically connected one-on-one -on -one because they looked around that room and they were like, oh, yeah. let me talk to you. Let me talk to you. Yeah. And they were meeting in person in COVID times, right? Wow. Which is amazing. And yeah. that's something that is really hard to do. But if you can get it right, Mm -hmm. It has all the staying power in the world. How did, so how did you um, work about doing some of those things? Because like, especially yeah. with this, like, <laughs> it's like, if I were creating a community around a football team or whatever, that's pretty easy to do, I would think in terms of like, you're, you're not only are you trying to build community, which is hard anyway, but you're also doing it around this topic that people are coming in with. Yeah. this baggage and this shame yeah. and this like, I would imagine that even if they want to join the community because they know that it will make them more informed and that they'll have the mm -hmm. coach and that they'll have support and all that kind of stuff. I would imagine yeah. that they're not, they're not coming in gushing right away and sort of burying their, their, their souls necessarily. So like, how did you yeah. go about making it feel safe to your point around like yeah. psychological safety or whatever it is? Yeah. You'd be surprised. I, I will answer that question. The one thing, though, that I, I must answer and just complete that last question is the number one thing that you need uh -huh. to do in building digital community is drive results. And this is the thing that most people get wrong. 
this is the thing that most people don't understand about community. They think community for community's sake is enough. And if there's chatter, it's fine. Driving results, if you're oriented around driving results, you will win. So, yeah. so that's, that's, I would say, the secret sauce of what I learned at Weight Watchers and what we're applying here. Um, mm-hmm. The safe space piece is so interesting. And what we realize with the model that we have with our coaches and even with our kind of medical providers is like the level of empathy of somebody who's actually been through this journey changes everything. Mm. What is actually happening and the way that we found our coaches, and we actually have like a lot of influx of interest to be a, a conceived coach is that we're already doing this, right? I think I told you early on, I had what I called a mentor. I had multiple mentors. And now I've been that for like, I don't know, maybe a hundred people, right? I'm the first person people tell that they're pregnant because like I'm the really safe one. But we are having these phone chats with acquaintances and friends of friends and friends and saying, okay, here's what helped me. And here's how I navigated that. And you're taking these bits of wisdom and trying to triage it into like how it might make sense for your journey. And like what you find out is often those little bits of wisdom from the community are sometimes more helpful than what you're getting maybe from your doctor or your nurse, because there's not a lot of transparency in the journey either. That's another mm-hmm. thing like we, we didn't really touch on. And I have this flow chart of the journey just to drive home how difficult and complex it is. But it's like, yeah. also, no one's laying it out for you. No one's like, Sean, yeah. here's the map, go down this crazy yeah. path. And you're like, okay, yeah. well, this looks crazy, but I'll do it. It's like every step yeah. you're uncovering a new thing and a new decision tree. Yeah. So well, I, I would imagine if you can show them the map, but then you can zoom in and be like, you are here. That has got to be hugely helpful, and, and that's and that's what we're doing, right? Yeah. And that and that's what's no, what no one's doing, and 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 that's like the that's sort of the secret sauce. It's like here's where you are, here's the map, and here's we're gonna hold your hand and walk you through it, yeah. right? Yeah, and we're yeah. here when you want us. We'll back off when you don't want us. Yeah, um, but but folks, you'll be surprised. We just started a new group on Tuesday, and everyone is just leaning in, and they are like this yeah. because. These things, these stories that weigh on them that are hard to talk about with their partner, if they have a partner, not everyone has a partner, right, are difficult to talk about in our personal lives. Like, what's really interesting is research shows that you're more willing to rely on an acquaintance who you see as an expert in a space than you are your personal orbit. And your personal orbit in particular becomes tricky in infertility because it almost seems like the minute you want to get pregnant and it's not working, everyone around you is freaking pregnant and the jealousy that seeps in and you may have never been a jealous person, uh, but you have real jealousy and it's hard, right? Uh, You take that one step removed and it's finally a safe space once a week for an hour just to get together. And we have a whole, I mean, it's a very built out curriculum and there's kind of CBT frameworks and then there's different sessions with different providers that do deep dives and do open Q and a, but it's this calming space where it's hand selected, right? Also. So like, for example, we have folks who are both on like day seven of their IVF stims, right? Right now, right? It's like, you're really in it together and just, you know, lifting people out of their day to day, bringing them together there. It's been, I would say, a lot of upfront operational work to do it, but it really pays off. Have you, you, you said, you, you've mentioned several times that it's not, it's not just a woman's problem. Have you, have you had a chance yet to do any male cohorts? And have there been any, anything that you've learned there yet? If, if so? Yeah, it's such a great question. And this is like the one that I'm, I'm dying to crack. We haven't yet. Okay. And it's not for lack of desire. I think the, the challenge we have is still sort of the 
flip flop of the burden, right? As I mentioned, like, not only is it a difficult process, but typically you have two people's medical journeys on one person's shoulders to navigate. So when I map, when I have that map of the, of the process, typically the woman is sorting that stuff out, right? Like I was just, we were talking with one of the founders of a male analysis company and I was curious. I was like, well, how many, like how often are men ordering this versus women, right? Like women are offered or often ordering yeah. the test for the man. I ordered the yeah. test for my husband, right? Well, like you said so, they go, they get prodded or whatever seven times before they even yeah. occurs to them to ask. That. So in that map. Which is insane. Yeah. Yeah. Which is insane. Yeah. So we yeah. want to get there. We also are thinking about ways to bring partners in together, right? And yeah. and one of the biggest things, obviously, with anything that takes a big mental toll is how are you with your partner? Like relationships yeah. really get tested and tried during yeah. this time. Yeah. Uh, and so coming back to basics, figuring out how you can better communicate. I have like the best, most supportive feminist husband. And I think we still miss each other a little bit after the miscarriage because I think he yeah. went into kind of fixing mode and I was still in mourning mode. And we had to figure out how to like come back together. Yeah. which luckily we have, but yeah. you know, sometimes frameworks and kind of structure for that can really, really help. So What's we do the, a bit of that with just the one partner, but we're moving from there to yeah. both at, at a certain point. What's the like Venn diagram between like, like it seems like you mentioned CBT, like, like is how much of the coaching experience is, is, is brass tacks, practical sharing knowledge and how much of it is, counseling or therapy or whatever it is? Like, how do you think about that aspect of it? Yeah. Yeah. So we're definitely not offering therapy. So we don't have therapists on, on the books. We do have therapists that we've worked with to create Uh the curriculum. And we do think about whether we bring them in for different lessons. And what we found is that it's interesting. Some people are in therapy, some aren't. The people that are in therapy are like, I'm doing this, right? And then it's all this long-term thing. And folks who aren't in therapy kind of like, are like, well, what's the breakthrough I'm going to have in this like one session? So what we found, what's more useful is kind of like working with therapists on the curriculum itself and thinking about things like one of the tactical outputs of Conceive is what we call the unplanned. And the unplan is kind of like, what are all the steps you're taking next? How do you feel about them? And when will you reassess? And it's this really simple way of like taking stock of everything you've done. And there's a bunch of different outputs of this. There's like a one pager you can put together. We have a template for it of like everything you've done, your goals. And this is the kind of thing you can shop around, not shop around, but like bring to new doctors if you're getting a second opinion where it's this consolidated view. Of course, they're still going to want the medical record. But it's yeah. also a way for you to have a really thoughtful conversation. I had been trying for three years and I was just starting to try again. And I was like, well, let me, what's all this shit that I know that they should know yeah. that like, they're going to not really go through hundreds of pages from different doctors around the country and mm-hmm. be able to, to sort of digest that down simply. But this framework really helps folks. Like, so for example, if you've been trying without any treatment, to get pregnant for over a year, you may want to say, I'm going to do this for one more month, two more months, or six more months, whatever feels good for me. But then I'm going to get another opinion. I'm going to go to the doctor, right? I'm going to go check this out and see what's going on. If you've been doing IVF and you've had several failed where you don't get any good embryos for implantation, you may say, okay, if, if one more fails, I need a second opinion. Right. So there's all these sort of like setting up goals. It sounds really obvious, but there's always a stark juxtaposition between like what we do in our business lives and what we do in our personal lives. And this sort of like goal setting and light at the end of the tunnel really helps folks say, okay, 
I know where I'm at. And then by the way, I'm going to reassess because for example, we had one woman who was going to do one more round of IVF and that was it. And then it didn't work. She's like, you know what? Maybe I'm going to do another, right? Like we've changed our mind and that's okay. We also think a lot about like, how do you just try to continue doing things that you love doing, right? Like sounds obvious too, but things can get totally overlooked. If you think about, we've talked a little bit about the psychological toll, the financial toll. We haven't really talked about the professional implication, right? Mm. And we talked a little bit about the kind of personal and maybe touched a little bit on the cultural implications. There's also cultural implications, right? In your life. If if you're supposed to have babies in your twenties and things like that. But professionally, there is a really big glaring implication of you going through things like IVF. If you're, the, the, the stim process of IVF is two weeks where you're injecting yourself almost every night, and then you have to go for the retrieval where you're under, under anesthesia. And you need to be monitored like every one, two, three days during that two-week period. Typically, that's early in the morning, so it tries to avoid conflicts with work, but that doesn't always net out to be exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And in the COVID times, I would say people had maybe an easier easier time with this because it was like right. sort of easier to finagle if you were working from home. Right. I wouldn't say we're necessarily past COVID times, but there are a lot of kinds of workers that cannot get out of their jobs, right, at yeah. even at 6 a.m. To, to go and do this. And most people don't have psychological safety to be able to say to their boss, like, hey, I'm trying to get pregnant. Like, I need, I need this time. We have one of our coaches who was kind of, she's a high school English teacher, absolutely incredible. She was asked to take a leave because she, it was interfering with work, which of course they need their teacher. And so that you can see yeah. both sides, but there's very real implications here of how yeah. this could take over your life. So we try to think about those aspects too, of getting back to your whole self and, and what are the things that you can do to bring back into your life that you may have avoided. Yeah. Makes sense. You mentioned the key to community that everybody ignores is like, you have to have a, you know, you you need to be optimizing for outcomes. I would imagine that that is a very tricky needle to thread in this specific case. Because like you said, the reality is that sometimes folks won't actually be able to get pregnant. And so like, I would imagine that the messaging through the coaching, the messaging in your marketing, the messaging to investors, to everybody, like you have this delicate balance of like, yes, we're creating a community that's optimized for outcomes at the same time, recognizing this is a very complex map. Here it is. Here's the map. And that sometimes people won't make it all the way through it. Like, how do you think about that in in this specific context? Yeah. So first of all, the results from the community are also like there's outcomes and then there's results. So we can talk about both things there. Um, The outcomes is the thing we obviously want to do, right? And we think we can do and we've done so far. Now, there is a, to your point, a very delicate balance of how we talk about this stuff, because I certainly would never want anyone to think we are some predatory company. There's a lot of predatory crap that happens in this space with coaches that charge you $5,000 for I don't know what but any medical background, we are not that, right? And so there's very real conversations we have. And in fact, this came up in our first session this week of like, well, I'm worried that this might not result in a baby, right? And that's a very real fear. That's part of the the, the chaos around the uncertainty because it's like you're doing all these things and if you just knew it was going to amount to something, you might want to torture yourself a little bit longer. And it really does feel like torture. We didn't talk enough about sort of the physiological manifestations too that sort of make you feel crazy from all these medicines. But 
if you, the, the things that we try to focus on is also sort of the, the support and sort of the stress and anxiety, right? Those are the other kind of like outcomes that we're, me- we're me- measuring and okay. trying to affect, which I think are really and equally important, right? How do you feel? How did you feel at the beginning? And how do you feel now? Do you feel less stressed, less anxious? Do you feel like you got the, the right guidance that you needed to get through this journey? And do you feel now that surrogacy, adoption, donor egg are the right path for you? Like we want to see that through with you no matter what it is. Yeah. It's a very real, it's a very real conversation. It's one we don't shy away from having. It's like, I wish I could wave a magic wand and get everyone pregnant, right? Obviously. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it, it's not always going to result in that, which is, is very true. And we're very thoughtful and careful about how we're messaging that. Yeah. And, and, and how our members feel we're messaging that. That makes sense. You mentioned that the, the, the beginning, you talked about all of these different point solutions and things like that, and that the, the unbundling of the clinic and all that kind of stuff. And there's Barksdale, I guess, everything's bundling or unbundling. Like, is there a, there's a world here where you are sitting at the nexus of all of this, right? And, and one in six, you get, you get, sufficient market share. One in six people is a lot of people. And so you got a bunch of people coming in who all need this and some of whom need these different kind of tools at each stage of that map or that journey or depending on the condition or whatever it is. Is there a world here where this is maybe maybe not a maybe it's not a bundling strategy necessarily, but you are like in a, a lead gen affiliate kind of strategy. I know I know your focus is obviously on creating a a vibrant community and you have to do all of that in order for any of that to even be relevant. But I mean, as people talk, coming from venture, you want to paint the opportunity for people. Yeah. Is that, yeah. is that no, listen, the long-term vision? Yeah. Yeah. So, so a couple of things on, on long-term. I mean, one, one piece that we think a lot about is helping be that sort of one-stop shop and giving you the vetted, trusted suggestions for what might help in your journey, right? The number one thing that folks always want to lean into is lifestyle factors. Like how should I eat? How should I move? And that's a lot because there's not a lot of clinical research around it. And there's like some people that'll say, stop working out. And there's some people that are like, keep working out. And it's like, ah, and it drives you nuts. It drives you insane. We want to help cut through the noise where we can. And we want to help suggest and recommend the products that we think are going to work well and always be very overt about any relationship we have there. We, Hallie Teco is one of our investors and advisors. So we're looking at, we, we've, our, our beta members had a Natalis discount and we've talked to Amy at Uva and they're doing some interesting hormone testing and we, we offered that to our members. So we're looking into things like this in the future yeah. for, to help our members cut through the noise and help just give a point of view on there's tons and tons of products out there and what should yeah. they use. I would yeah. say from like a, a, you know, vision perspective for Conceive, we want to be your healthcare partner. And we see this happening above and beyond just fertility. Like we think about this from menstruation through menopause. This is the very long-term vision. But the reality is like these questions and pain points don't stop once you're pregnant and they don't stop once you're a parent and they don't stop once you go through menopause. And I think we talked about some of this earlier, but like they really start at menstruation. Like the early Mm. intervention piece is like the key, right? We all know our healthcare system is not set up for prevention, And if we stopped brushing everything under what I call the birth control rug, right, where it's like, just take birth control. And we learned a little bit earlier, like when my daughter in 10 years gets her period, like, I want her to know what her symptoms are saying. 
have the tools and resources and community to thrive with them, right? I want her to have that playbook. And if we can nail this playbook, which I know we can, we can easily kind of copy and paste it along the healthcare journey and be your partner, be your expert best friend in your pocket that supports you and gives you that information, be the front door for help from menstruation through menopause. Wow. That's really cool. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. Where should I send people that might benefit from this? And how, how, do, how do the cohorts work yeah. and how do, how do folks get involved? Yeah. So come on over to weconceive.com. We have a couple of new cohorts starting in September for folks who are doing IVF, for folks who are not doing IVF. So there's, there's, a, there's a whole gamut there. We have some incredible, incredible coaches. You can follow us on Twitter at Conceive. You can follow us on Instagram at We Conceive. You can follow me at Lauren Burson on Twitter. Very cool. Well, congrats on on the success so far. Having seen several good friends go through this journey, I can't imagine how much better that process would have been for them if something like this existed. So congrats on what you're doing and, and I just wish you the best. So, Thanks so much, John. This was a blast. I appreciate it. For more ideas on how to disrupt your own organization and how Manifold Advisory might be able to help, visit us at manifold.group advisory. And if you're looking for a truly value-added investment partner, visit us at manifold.group ventures. If you found this episode helpful, we would love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much as always for listening. We'll see you next time.